Hey friends, this is The Real Mom Podcast and I am Jamie Finn coming to you with another episode and this one is really such a blessing. I'm sharing my friend Tori Peterson with you today and she is a gift. She wears a number of different hats a former foster youth, biological mom, foster mom, and she is just so generous with her story. She shares about her experience in foster care, her life, and really shares insights for us, especially foster moms, of how we can serve our children, how we can consider what they might be thinking and feeling, and really just shares her story in a way that's so generous and and will help us as we consider serving our kids. We talk about life as a biological mom, now stepping into a new role as foster mom, and we just had such a great time connecting. I know that you are going to love to hear Tori and learn from her as much as I did. So here is my time with Tori Peterson. Hey Tori, how are you? I'm doing fantastic today, Jamie. How are you doing? Good. I'm great. I mean, I have been in my house pretty much nonstop for weeks and I'm sitting in my office by myself right now. So that alone is making me feel really great. (laughs) I've actually kind of liked being at home. I travel often for work and I think I didn't realize how much I was traveling and I have a 17 month old. I feel so close to him right now. So close to my husband. So it's been a little bit of a refresher, but I can imagine that with all your babies. Right. (laughs) I mean, I for sure feel that. I think right now, actually, I'm supposed to be in Texas. Oh no, that's next week. I'm same thing. I travel and I work and I'm stressed and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is what it feels like to not be stressed all the time. (laughs) But yes. I'm still, I'm happy to have a little bit of a break from the kids too, if I'm being honest. All right. So you just referenced the baby. Introduce your family to us. So my husband is Jacob. We've been married for almost two years and that'll be in May. Our anniversary is coming up really soon, which is exciting. We were going to go on a trip, but obviously with Corona, that's going to have to be rescheduled. Yeah. And then I have a 17-month-old son. His name is Leander, and we're fostering a teenage boy. Okay, so I just have to stop you right there. Two years you've been married, mm-hmm. almost immediately had a baby. Mm-hmm. And then brand new to parenting, one baby, and you're fostering a teenager. We have no idea what we're doing, baby. <laughs> I mean, none of us do, so that's okay. You're in good company. But was that the plan or like, was it the plan? We want to have a baby right away and then we're going to jump right into foster care. All right, Jamie, you said you wanted this to be raw. We're raw. Go for it. I got pregnant before we were married. Okay. And we had a shotgun wedding. We went to a very, very conservative college and received a ton of backlash. But I was conceived out of rape. I always viewed my mom as my hero because she chose life for me in a very difficult circumstance. And so I knew when I became pregnant in not an ideal situation that that was the decision that I wanted to make for my family and my baby and myself. So Jacob, my husband, was alongside that. He supported me fully and we decided that We wanted to make our, we are Christian 
and we knew that we were living in sin and we wanted to make our wrong as right as we could. So we believed that we had to get married and it's like we had to get married, but we did want to get married before that. You whatever should have gotten married even without the pregnancy. Yeah. Like we wanted to get married before, but I was going to take a job and I was going to live among vulnerable young women. And so this was like my dream job, at least my dream starter job. And obviously Jacob, if we were to get married, I was going to lose that job right out of college. And so that was the decision that we had to make. And I did, I did lose that job. All right. So we're going to jump into this. I don't know that I have necessarily on the podcast, though I'm fine doing it sort of unabashedly. That right there, you are the argument for every bullet point of abortion, right? It's, this was an accident and we don't have the support. There's pushback. I have my career and this dream job. So talk to me, and I'm guessing that some of your story, which is, I do want to talk about your full story, but I'm guessing that informs part of that. But talk to me a little bit about just where that conviction comes from to be, you know, I'm staunchly pro-life, but it's easy to be pro-life over here. You had to really put feet to what you believed. I mean, like I said, my mom, she gave me life. God ultimately gave me life, but my mom continued and said yes to God and said yes to me. And I always feel like just from a very young age, I had this intrinsic hope within me and I knew that I had a purpose, that God had a plan for me, even before I was saved, even before I like knew Mm -hmm. that Jesus Christ was my Lord and Savior. I knew that there was a purpose over my life. And I believe that everything happened for a reason to every human being. And if I was going to be consistent with that in college, a little bit, I would say that like not my philosophy of being pro-life had changed, but I was very convicted after I read this book. It's called The Furious Longing of God by Brendan Manning. I was just so convicted to like radically love people. And if I wanted to be consistent on all these fronts, on all these beliefs, then I had to choose life for my family, for my child and for myself. And I also think this is going into what we we had planned to talk about a little bit. As a former foster youth, there's so much trauma that I have had to work through that I am still working through. And I know that there are women who say that they've had an abortion and that it's fine. It wasn't emotionally difficult at all. But I've met a lot of women who, a lot more women who have said that it is extremely traumatic. It was so difficult. They see a child and they have to think about the baby that they terminated. And I also knew that I just couldn't pack another trauma on to everything that I was already in the midst of healing. It was traumatic to receive all the pushback we did, especially, Hmm. I mean, it was, I'm saying pushback, but it was like scrutiny from especially the church because some people would say that I'm still a very young believer. I was saved when I was 17 and I'm 24 now. So I've been a Christian for only seven years when I got pregnant, I was 22. And so just being a young Christian and having 
maybe a little bit of too high expectations of church leadership, mm-hmm. I was really disappointed and my mm-hmm. heart was pretty broken. All right. There's something that I want to go back to that I feel like is so interesting in this discussion. The really crux of the pro-choice argument is a woman and her right and her life. And it's so interesting to me that part of what you're saying is part of the reason that you weren't able to have an abortion, that you chose not to have an abortion was to protect yourself. And that's like a piece of the argument that I don't know, argument meaning, you know, as if we're talking about something that's over there. I know we're talking about your life here. So I don't mean to trivialize it by saying argument, but it's so interesting to me. This isn't just about, well, there's this human life and God created it. And so we need to honor that, but also the trauma for the mother and you recognizing that like, this is about protecting this life. And it's also about protecting myself and my mental health and acknowledging it as a trauma for you as well. Yeah. So my birth mother had also had abortions. I knew that it was traumatic for her. People always ask like people who are pro-life, well, how many women do you know who've had abortions? Actually, I know a lot, I would like to say. So I had met a woman in college who had gotten an abortion and she told me that she was raped. That's why she chose to have the abortion, which right. That's traumatic. We can acknowledge that, that no one should have to go through that. Yeah. But she said that the abortion was worse than the rape. Hmm. And so to me, I just knew that this was a very traumatic thing. People who were close to me, I could see how it impacted their lives, how they had regretted Hmm. it. And yeah, I have plenty of those already. I have plenty of trauma events and plenty of things I regret. I do not need more stacked on. And like, to me, it was more than about myself. It was about this. For sure. It is undeniably a human being. You get an ultrasound at how many weeks and you can see those little feet. You can see those little legs and you can hear a heartbeat at five weeks. And we did. And it's just like, it's undeniable. Yeah. That's a human being. Yeah. Purpose and And, plan. And a human being who is now out of your room and your beloved son, 17 months old, probably I have, how old is she? 20 month old. So I know that stage and how fun it is. And they're coming to know themselves and you in a new way. It's, oh my God. It is so fun. Jamie, he is the coolest baby. Like when I was (laughs) pregnant, I just remember people saying like, this is going to be so hard. What are you going to do? And oh my gosh, like. He has been such a joy. Not that I have like had hard times, but no harder than anything else I've been through. And now I'm pregnant again. I'm 17 weeks pregnant right now. Oh my goodness. I didn't <laughs> know that. Yes. And everyone says, oh, because Leander's so good. This second one is going to be a handful. This second one's going to be so bad. And I'm just like, whatever. That's what you said about Leander. <laughs> I will say, I'm sorry to discourage you, but that was a hundred percent my experience. First one, I was like, oh, I can do this. And they just do what you ask them to do. And it's wonderful. And then the second one tore everything apart. (laughs) (laughs) I'll keep you updated. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So I do want to talk about your journey into foster care, but let's start with you at the very beginning. So you already started at the very, very beginning, just that you were conceived in rape and that your mother chose life. And I love, oh my gosh, I wrote it down. I got chills when you said it. My mom said yes to God and yes to me. And I, I love that. I mean, you're right. God creates life. And then she chose you. 
So pick up from there. Start at the very beginning. Tell us your story. So I was born in Texas. My mom didn't want me to live in a city. She wanted me to be raised in a small, rural, safer town. So we moved to Ohio where she was originally from. We still ended up living in a city for a short time where my mom was busted for being a drug lord. And that was the first time that I ever went into the foster care system. I was about four years old. I remember the men in uniform coming in and busting our door down while I was watching Scooby-Doo in my big t-shirt. And they took me away. And my first foster home was... Not a good one, I would Mm. say. And then I was reunified with my mom. That was always the plan. My mom says it was about six months. I think to a four-year-old, it feels like a century. I did did it. It It felt like a century. Oh, yeah. I did not feel like it was six months. Because my mom was a good mom. We had a good relationship. And I remember when I got to my foster home, she tried to make me eat like peanut butter and jelly and mac and cheese. And because my mom was a drug lord, we ate like steak and crab legs and vegetables. And I was like, I don't eat that. That's a- <laughs> so I was pretty this, spoiled too. This is beneath me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I was pretty spoiled and I wanted to be spoiled. I want to go back to my mom. <laughs> yeah. So you don't remember those first four years as being like really tumultuous. No, I remember. I mean, we lived with my mom's boyfriend and I would sit at the piano. He would play the piano for me. I remember I would spend a lot of time at other people's houses, hmm. but they were fine people. So yeah, those first four years were good. And I had a very good relationship with my mom. It's interesting to hear, you know, a lot of people who listen to this, a lot of the women who are listening are foster moms. And so to hear from your perspective of six months feeling like a century, I mean, as much as possible for a four-year-old, you know, and you remembering what that was like, like what about it was more challenging? Was it being away from your mom or was it how sort of alien everything was? And what pieces of that stuck out to you as like really negative or really positive? So like I said, I stayed with a bunch of different people a lot. So I really don't think that was the big deal. My foster mom was kind of mean to me. Mm -hmm. I wet the bed when I started living with her. Every time I wet the bed, she would make me take my underwear off and go scrub them in the toilet until she would tell me to stop. And I remember Mm -hmm. my hands being like pruny. So it had to be kind of a long time. And then of course there was the eating. Like I just wouldn't eat at her house and I was only four. So I know it sounds like I was really spoiled and nasty. Like what a nasty four-year-old, right? Like wanting crab legs. But I was just like, I'm not eating this. I don't even know what this is. Right. Right. This isn't what I've that That thing. And then there's one time me and a little girl, we were playing a game you know, like the game where the kids roll on the floor and then the other kid jumps over them? Yeah. Hey, I can't remember. But we were playing that game and I tripped over her and she ran upstairs and she told the mom that I kicked her in the stomach. And then so she told that little girl to walk on my stomach. Hmm. And so she was just not, obviously there was some weird yeah, underlying yeah, yeah. like abuse there. Yeah. And she was not very kind. So that was a really big reason I wanted to go and back to my mom. what's funny is, is the things you were struggling with were like classic 
kind of trauma, foster child things, eating, wetting the bed, like just the things that our kids are going to struggle with when they come to us through foster care and that we need to be prepared for. I mean, obviously it didn't seem like she was a very healthy, nurturing mom. Right. Yeah. Okay. So you were reunified and how long were you then with, do you call her your mom? Your birth? Is it yes, your mom? I call her my mom. Yeah. Okay. You said your yes. birth mom before. So I just wanted to make sure I was matching your term. Yeah. I just wanted to clarify sure. because I do have a mother. I call her my mother figure because I don't call her mom. Like sure. Okay. I call her by her name. But okay. that's, that's why I like to clarify. So yeah, I was reunified with my mom and then we just pretty much lived life as normal as you can. We moved to that small town that she was from. I went to school and my mom is diagnosed with severe mental illness, but that mental illness kind of manifests in mania. And so Mm -hmm. she can go to work and be like, amazing. Mm-hmm. She is a saleswoman. She sells cars, she sells vacuum cleaners. Yeah. Yeah. So that's like how it manifests. And so she was gone a lot. Like she would go door to door and sell vacuum cleaners from morning to night. And I would not see her. But then my mom got in a car accident and that put her on disability. Hmm. And she was home all the time. And that's when the abuse started upping like I was abused but it'd be like once a month not really a big deal or like one maybe like twice a month so I know that is still a big deal that's still a big deal guys like if you know that a child's being abused once a month please report it well and not just that but but for your healing of like understanding okay this is a big deal and just that like that dynamic as well right so then when my mom couldn't go to work. The abuse was got really bad. And so how, how old were you? So she probably got in her car accident when I was like 10 or 11. And then I went back into the foster care system. The abuse was being seen and reported when I was around 12 or 13. So let's just talk again. Please tell me if there's anything that you don't want to talk about, but I know that you are really open and that you love to use your story to serve others. So I'm operating under that assumption. And I want you to know if there's anywhere that you don't want to go, but so many of us have kids who've come to us who have walked through that abuse. I mean, like show us into the mind of a 12 year old who's entering a foster home and has experienced abuse. And where is that child mentally, emotionally, with their self-esteem, with their understanding of family? Like, what was that like for you? So the thoughts that I remember most vividly was that I was really excited about going into the foster care system because I thought, oh, this is going to be my chance. Okay, this is the one thing that I oppress. And I always like, I just never bring it up as soon as I should. I have a sister who's 10 years younger than me. And we were separated and it is the hardest it's like the hardest thing. Hmm. But I remember when I went into foster care, I thought this is mine and my sister's chance to have a normal family Hmm. and to live a good life. And when we got separated, that was very, very difficult. It was like these high hopes and these high expectations 
that I had really like the only thing I wanted was just for me and my sister to not be abused anymore and live a life that looked more normal Hmm. than we had been living have just lived very different lives. And I don't know. I feel like I never know if she's okay. Hmm. You know, I share about keeping siblings together, but it's always in a, an on this side sort of way. And to hear from you of just how heartbreaking it was and continues to be, to be separated from her. I mean, as a foster parent, what are your thoughts or sharing with other foster parents? Like, what can we do to keep siblings together to preserve that? Yeah, I think, right, like I follow this other foster mom on social media and I know that she just had the oldest of the siblings had to leave and it was with no fault of her own. And so I think sometimes there's situations like that where I want to be really sensitive to like sometimes you can't like I realize that sometimes it is just impossible to keep sibling groups together that sometimes it is about the safety and security of the siblings and the family as a whole right right so I want to be sensitive to that and be like I I see you foster parents if you have had separation because of that like that is not what I'm talking about here yeah yeah but I think Probably what I see more is not the foster parents that are saying, I can't take a sibling group or I don't want to keep these siblings together. It's the caseworkers. Sure. It's the systemic piece of finding beds for kids. Finding beds for kids. We want the parent to kid ratio to be this. This kid is having behaviors and we're just going to blame it on, oh, it's because they're with their siblings and we're not going to try and like solve that. We're just going to rip them out of the home and put them somewhere else. I see the problem a lot more being with the county agency than the heart of the foster parents. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. And I know even just in New Jersey, the worker that actually places the child is a completely different worker than the worker that carries the case. And so if your job is to just get a child in a home so that you can go home, is the focus really on what is going to be the healthiest, happiest place for this child long-term? Or is it just, I have four kids I need to place and I need to get home. And it's a really hard dynamic. Does your state have GALs or CASAs? We have, they're called law guardians. And so it's the child's lawyer. So it's, similar to like a child advocate. Yeah. And we do have that, CASAs, but. Okay. I just think that every kid needs to have a CASA because their job is to advocate for what is in the best interest of the child. And in my experience in foster care, that is what my CASA did. And with my experience with other foster youth, I just see like these CASAs and GALs being, they like go to bat for these kids. Yeah more than I would say like a caseworker does. I feel like the caseworker more works for the county, keeping those quotas and the foster parents and the right we need them to do that. But I think if like we have someone working for us as foster parents, someone working for the county, then we need someone to work for the kid because otherwise there's just a bias in trying to maintain the things that you have to maintain as a caseworker. Yeah, absolutely. And I always try to sort of reorient towards compassion for the caseworker. Like, you know, their job is to, like you're saying, maintain those things, handle the checklists and, 
you know, go to court and make sure everyone's getting their services. And it can be hard to have like a holistic perspective of what's going to be in the best interest of the child. Mm -hmm. So when you were with your foster families, how many foster homes were you in? 12. You were in 12 foster homes. Mm -hmm. Wow. So give me a snapshot of what it feels like to show up at a new home. I would say when you're going to your second home and then when you're going to your 12th home, like what does it look like for you to say, okay, I'm entering this family and this is a fresh start 12 times. Yeah. So Jamie, I wrote this poem like maybe like two months ago and it starts off with, hi, my name is Tori. Oh, I'm sorry. Because it's like, you're just trying to adjust to this new family. So you got to apologize a lot. You got to, all foster kids have crazy empathy because they got to have empathy one to probably regulate their lives with their biological parents and feel that out. So that explosions and abuse isn't happening. They're trying to prevent it as much as they can. And then they have super high empathy because they're moving from foster home to foster home, trying to adjust to every Figuring different family. out what life is in this home. Yeah. So I wrote this poem, like trying to illustrate this. Oh, hi, my name is Tori again. Yeah. And here I am trying to adjust all over again to these new patterns, this new family. And I mean, I felt like that's how it was till the very end. And I think that has made me today a little bit of a chameleon. You know, like, have you ever taken the assessment strength finders? Yeah. Okay. And like one of the strengths on there is like, you can just adjust. Right, right. Right. And that's an awesome strength, but sometimes it can be a huge weakness because I feel like sometimes I'm just never presenting my full self to people. What side of this person do you want of me right now. Yeah. Like if people are just really calm, okay, I'll just be really calm. Yeah. 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 But that's not like, that's actually not who I am. And I'm a pretty high energy, very vocal person. And then if people are very like high energy and very vocal, then that's how I'll show up. Or if I feel like, okay, they want this stage right now. I'm a, And like, sometimes that's just what we do like as human beings. But I think I just feel like sometimes I do it to the point where I'm never like presenting myself. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, not to speak for you, but even just the question of like, which piece of this self is me (laughs) and like kind of who am I, if I've had to be this person and fit into all these different pieces because family shapes who we are. I mean, that's just like child development 101. And so if family is constantly changing, then that shaping of the self and where you fit inside a unit has to be changing. And I wrote that in the poem too, because I feel like people are like, oh, just be confident in who you are. Right. And it's like, well, I'm confident in who God has made me to be, but there's also these parts of like my biological father who I know nothing about. My mother is diagnosed with bipolar and schizophrenia. And then all the families that I've had have told me to be like this and that and this and that. And so it's very hard to put together these very human parts. It can be very hard to put yeah. these human parts together. And oh that's my gosh, why Tori, a, I can't I'm even a- wrap my brain around that. Everything that you just shared. Yeah. These are the pieces that form who we are and your pieces are just like all over the place and you have to even search for them before they are coming together. Yeah. And like, I'm so fortunate that God has entered my life and I can go back to him and say, God, who do you want me to be? 
Yeah. But I do believe that God has given us a foundation for like, he gives all of us those answers through the lives that we've lived through our family. And so that's why being a former foster youth, sometimes people are like, like for this former foster youth be such a huge part of your identity. But like, what's the difference between like letting your family be a huge part of your identity? This is the story that God has given me. So it, it is a huge part of who I am. Yeah. I love what you just hit too, because I think that you're holding it all in the same space of, you know, this struggle with identity and who I am. And yet also I am a child of God and my ultimate identity is found and defined in Christ. And it doesn't have to be either or that like, well, if you're confident in your identity in Christ, then you don't ever question these other Thank pieces. Thank you. Yes, Jamie. <laughs> Those and that things. is the struggle that I have yeah. had communicating with Christians in the church. It's like, well, if you are Christian, if you're truly Christian, if you truly find all your that matters identity is that your Jesus is. Right. Right. But God still has given us all this background to know who we are. Exactly. And my background is much more confusing than yours. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think. Thank you. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Thank you for I mean, affirming me. <laughs> hopefully, what we can all grow in is holding this like really rich gospel-centered perspective that sees that God's word is truth and trumps everything, while also holding what we know, which science shows us, of the brain and body and trauma and the way those two things don't contradict but come together to give us a real picture that can the gospel can transform those pieces of what trauma has done to our bodies and brains. Let the preacher preach, Jamie. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So we talked about the hellos of those homes, but what about, again, I don't even know how to talk through 12 homes, but give me snapshots of what worked in those homes for you, of when you felt loved and nurtured and a part of things And then on the flip side, the opposite. So I want to talk about family. They were the best family ever. Well, I had a few of those, but the first one I'm going to talk about, they became foster parents just for me. They met me and they became foster parents just for me. And so I was at a residential group home after me and my sister got separated. I went to a residential group home facility. So that's basically like, if people don't know what that is, that's what America calls orphanages. (laughs) Like we say we don't have orphanages, but group homes are. So you step up to protect your sister and what ends up happening there is you essentially get sent off. You know, residential is never going to be the best first plan for a kid. A caseworker told me that I was unplaceable. Yeah. And, and this that is was like your first home, right? Didn't you say right. that was your first home? The second. So, well, so like in the scheme, my first after sure, sure. 12, when my you were second removed. total. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So I'm just going to say this real quick. These are the things where I have to go back to my identity in Christ because mm. they told me I was unplaceable. Mm. And then later in the journey, they told me I was unadoptable. Mm. So my God adopted me though. Mm. Anyway, okay. So there you go. That's where the identity, <laughs> exactly. That is where okay. it trumps. I love that. That's beautiful. Yes. Okay. Sorry. So this first foster home, they became foster parents just for me. Phenomenal. The dad was African-American. The mom was white. I know people can't see me on here like you can, but just so you guys know, I'm mixed race. 
So it can be hard to like, you're never a part of a family that looks like you. And so everyone thought that I was actually part of their family and that they had like missed me along the way. Like I was just the middle child who like no one ever saw. (laughs) And that was super cool. And they had like put me in their family pictures. And like if people like, sometimes if people, they knew that they missed me, they would like act like, oh yeah, yeah, we knew her, that you had her all along, like that she was your daughter. Yeah, they were trying to play it cool. Like, <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. So that was really cool. Just like, it was often not even a question that I was a foster youth and that really normalized my life because hmm. as a foster youth, right, we know that there are just things that people are uncomfortable with. They don't want to ask us the same questions as everybody else, et cetera, et cetera. And I think it's really important to say, I messed this foster home up. Mm. I am the reason that I had to leave. And it was really sad, but this family still sees me every Christmas. Mm. They still get me a present every Christmas. Every time I go back to Ohio they take me out to eat. They came to my college graduation. They sat in the front row of my wedding. Like they are, so they the are epitome. family. Yeah. They're the epitome yeah. of God's forgiveness. Like, okay. I Tori, love we have to stop here. I love what you just said because <laughs> how many foster parents are listening? You just referenced someone that's a good friend of mine that you follow on Instagram. How many foster parents are listening who are great parents? stepped out in love, made this choice, did everything right and offered this, you know, quote unquote, perfect foster home situation. And yet it's not always that simple because with everything that you had been through, what in your heart and body and brain really could allow you to believe this is right and will be right forever? You know, and I think that just that reorientation, there's so much guilt and there's so much sadness when we can't give our foster children what they need from us. But I think what you're sharing is they couldn't give it to you because they were giving it to you. They were trying and yet it wasn't enough. I wasn't receiving it. I think it's so important to mention because yeah, even with our biological children, like we can do everything. We pour everything into these people that we love. And like, we just see these little parts crumble or we see everything crumble. And we're like, we blame it on our, we always blame it on ourselves. We're like, For what sure. could I have done? God? Like, I just wasn't a good foster parent. I just didn't read enough on trauma. I just didn't read my Bible enough and pray enough for this kid. And it's like, no, they did everything. They really did. And it was just me unable to receive mm. that. Yeah. But how beautiful that they have continued to love you and be family. That is just like every part of that is an inspiration because it's like, yes, sometimes you can't do enough, but also you can still do it. You can still be there and still show love and show up, even if it can't be in the context that I'm sure that they wanted because they're so loving towards you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. So that was your, you know, golden family. Let's go the opposite. Like what times were you made to feel less than give us the cautionary tale of don't treat your foster children like this or, or these well-intentioned things even made me feel this way. So my second to last foster home was probably 
the foster home that I felt the most tension in and the most, a lot of heartbreak, not the most heartbreak, the most heartbreak came from the last one I just talked about, but a lot. So I was reading Atlas Shrugged in high school. Mm. And so that made me very interested, started making me more interested in philosophy and religion. And I started to just read a lot more and ask a lot more questions about who God was. And right in America, when we ask who God is, Jesus Christ is who comes about. And this Jesus Christ man, I was like, I was about him. I was like, I want to be like him. He hangs out with the people that other people see as lowly. He loves really hard. And he's like, does really cool miracles. I want to be like this dude. (laughs) And there's also this part of him who, right, he had suffered. Like the part that was most attractive about him was that he he had answered my question about suffering that I had had Mm -hmm. about God. Like, I was like, well, like, why do I suffer so much? Or why do like all these foster youth have to suffer when their parents, right? Usually their parents are their abusers. And like, we're suffering because Mm -hmm. of it. And I could just see, like, there's finally this image of this amazing man who had suffered for glory, who had Mm. suffered because he loved. That's how big he loves. And I felt like I finally had my answer. Like, okay, I'm suffering because it brings me closer to God. Mm. I glorify him. And in suffering, I learn how to love a little bit deeper. Mm. And all these big questions were finally answered. These foster parents, they were Christian. We read the Bible at the table or did a devotion at the table. And like every, every day we went to church on Sunday and the mom was a child psychiatrist. So it was just like this picture perfect family. And it made so like, I was like, I'm at this perfect place, but I was confused because they abuse their children in like very subtle ways that you don't really, you wouldn't really see as abuse. So they had a son who would wet the bed and she would make him sit in the tub and pee on himself. And she would pour his own feces on his head. And when I said like, why are you doing that? She said, well, that's the natural and the logical consequence for him peeing the bed. And that's, what's going to help him not pee the bed. And she was a child psychiatrist. So I thought, of course, like she knows what she's doing, not me. You know what I mean? And I had a boyfriend at the time and he was also in the church. His dad was a pastor. So he was a really good influence on me. And they would do some other just, again, like really subtle things that you could kind of get away with, but that were definitely abuse. Yeah. And he was like, that that doesn't even feel that subtle. (laughs) Yeah. And I know it's not, yeah, it's not subtle. I was just kind of silly, but he was like, Tori, the stuff that they're doing is not right. Mm. And I was like, what do you mean? (laughs) And he had just kind of like explained everything to me. And then I got really mad at God. Mm. I was like, what in the world? Like, I feel like you just presented yourself to me. And like these people who proclaim your name are absolutely contradicting you. So this Mm. is just a mask that people put on. Like this Christianity thing is just like, a thing that people do to like cover their butts for abusing their kids. I was, I was really angry. Hmm. And I would say that was probably like the foster home that created the most turmoil in me and the most anger. Yeah. I mean, even just saying, you know, the subtle abuse compared to the abuse that you had 
walked through, it probably didn't it like, oh, this isn't what I went through. So this isn't abusive. Exactly. Like my mom like hit and kicked right, me, threw right. things at me. Like that's like what abuse is typically, right? Right. So I you're think. like, okay, this thing over here is abusive and unloving, but these people over here are loving and this is what they're doing. And so then seeing, oh wait, that's not love either. So I already knew this really ugly thing wasn't loving. Now I'm seeing this thing isn't loving. Like what is love then if I thought that I had found it in Jesus and found it in his followers? So what did it look like for you to really come to know Jesus the way you do now in a way that transforms your perspective, even of his followers failings? Yeah. So I say it's been a very long journey. I went to my next foster home after these foster parents were caught abusing their children. Wow. And the foster mom, I really feel like God did this on purpose. Like he wanted to show me the image of like the stark difference of what Christians can be. So I went to my next foster home and there's just this woman who really acted out of love. Mm. She was sacrificial. She was kind. She made sure I had everything I needed. I was kind of a more high maintenance foster kid because I ran track and I was really good at it. So I, I went to practice like every day. I was kind of weird about the things that I ate. I was, I was kind of an anal kid because of my track career. And so, which was a whole nother thing that ended up bringing me closer to God and changing my life. There's just so much, but that's what I'm saying. Like it was a very long journey, but yeah. I would say that stark difference yeah. was a huge influence mm-hmm. on me coming to Christ. Cause I was like, okay, like, right. We're sinners. I might look like foster home 11 sometimes, but that's why I need you. Hmm. My hope is that I, I look like foster home number 12 always, hmm. but like right. Foster home number 11 needs you as much as I do. Hmm. Yeah. I love what you're saying that it was one person <laughs> destroying sort of this idea of what it means to follow Jesus. And to be loving, and yet one person being able to restore that. And I find that really hopeful as a foster and adoptive mom, and my word, as a human being, that it's not just like, oh, there's this damage and the, you know, relationships cause harm and people break these pieces of you. But yeah, but what about these other families that you're talking about also who? that one person was able to restore your understanding of love and sacrifice and what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. And it's not just that people can break us. It's that God can use people to heal us also. I love it. All right. I just want to go really quickly because we can't move on from the fact that you're a former foster youth. You've been married for two years and you're fostering a teenage boy. So just tell me, when did you make the decision to become a foster parent and what has it looked like for you to wear both of those identities at the same time? Okay. So when I was in college and when I met my husband, of course, a former foster youth is a huge part of my identity. So that's something he learned about me rather fast and one of the first things he asked is, would you ever want to be a foster parent yourself? And I said, no, absolutely not. Because I don't ever want to get back in that system. It's corrupt. It hurt me. 
da, 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 da. And then someone was talking to me. So my husband was homeschooled all the way through. I went to public school all the way through. And we have a very strong homeschool population where we live. And I was talking to someone who was very anti-public school. And she was just talking about how she would never send her, or she, and she was a teacher too. And she was a homeschool teacher and she like has tutored and taught a bunch of different homeschool co-ops here. And she was saying she would never go into the public school system because it's so corrupt and it's so bad. And I was like, like in my head and in my heart, I was like, uh, uh-uh. uh, like that's why us Christians step Isn't into these that systems. The exact reason. Yeah. I was like, we got to step into these systems as Christians. We got to do this hard thing for the glory of God. And then I was like, ooh, wait. (laughs) I was like, wait, that's what I said about the foster care system. And I did feel like God was kind of convicting my heart. Like, Tori, this is something you should try. And I love, you just made a post about this. Actually, I like yesterday or something about like, this doesn't have to be your whole life. Yeah. But this is your heart. Like, try and step into it. And I felt like God was at least like, just kind of poking me. Like, just, just try it. Just do it. So we went, we filled out the paperwork, we did all our training, and then our family actually went through a pretty big tragedy. And it was like, okay, we're not going to be able to be foster parents. And then through so many divine encounters, this young man has come to us. And this has been like maybe a month and a half thing, Jamie, very short. So it is very new. How I am wearing both identities, not well. (laughs) like this is, I don't know. You know what? It's funny because we're on a podcast right now because I love your perspective and I want to share your perspective, but the reality of you and me and anyone who's ever sharing on a podcast is you're not healed in the fullest sense. You are still healing. And especially I hate to pull like, I mean, an older woman to the younger woman, but 24-year-old me with no childhood trauma and 35-year-old me is more healed (laughs) than I was 11 years ago. And just seeing like, this is going to be another step of your healing process. Yes. To speak to as if you are healed right now is ridiculous because none of us are. And how much more so, you know, so much that that you've been through and are going through and all of that. So, you know, when I'm asking you that question, I'm not really looking for the answer because I know you don't have the answer. And I think a good answer is probably not that well. I don't know what I'm doing and I don't know how to do this. Yeah, we are so learning. I think the biggest lesson I've learned is that even, I just made a post about this too, people with similar backgrounds, we cannot assume that they need the same thing. Like, and that's a phenomenon that I've always known about. Like people who go through a divorce, they want to give the same exact advice yeah, yeah. about like to someone else who's going through a divorce, but it's like, no, like I don't need that. So we see that phenomenon all the time. And I think right now it's being very hard to apply. I'm having to learn that he needs very different things than I needed at sure, that age. Sure. And every fall, like people come to me for advice so often. And like the advice that I'm giving them is like, it's for me. It's like, it's what right. I needed, but it's so right. important to say, like, I want foster parents to hear that. Like if what I tell you is not working, it's because like your foster youth is not me. Right. <laughs> yeah. That's so good. All right. So tell me this then, 
How are you meeting Jesus uniquely the past six weeks in being a foster mother? I think it's just what you just said. Like, I still have a lot of healing myself with all. It's so interesting, Jamie, because like when I can still have my fits, like as a 24 year old, you don't really know what those look like. Like no one has a, like no one is videotaping you. No one has a mirror in front of you, but like I'm seeing them in a form of another human being. And that is because he has an unmet need. Right. Mm. And it's just a reminder that I have unmet needs Mm. and I'm just trying to identify what those are meeting God in prayer and asking him, like, I've always known this healing is not complete. I don't believe it will be complete until I have met him eyes to eyes in heaven. Yep. But how can I make it more complete so that Mm. I can be the best foster mother, the best bio mother and the best wife that I can be? Because if we want to be good parents, we got to focus on our healing as much as we're focusing on everybody else's. So good. So good. All right. On that note, I want to switch gears just to you as Tori. I want to know what are you doing, eating, reading, watching, and listening to? So what is your thing right now? What are you doing? Oh my gosh. That's so cool. Okay. What am I doing? I just made candles. Wow. This is, like I've never made candles thing? before. Okay. Yes, definitely quarantine thing. Nice. So I usually travel a lot. I'm speaking, I'm writing, and I haven't done that a lot in quarantine. So I decided to make candles. Okay. It's actually really funny how this came about. I was like, I'm going to get gifts for all the people I love and I miss. Yeah. And then I saw my cart, like my cart price. And I was like, uh-uh, no, I'm yeah. not going to get gifts. <laughs> <laughs> so then I ordered a bunch of stuff to make candles. And I was like, I'm going to send candles to people. Okay. So if one wants to become a candle maker in this quarantine, what is like the first step? Where's the best place to go to learn to do this? Go to Etsy. It's okay. so easy. They have everything there. Just Google how to make candles and then go to Etsy. They have everything. And right now, like I want to support small businesses. So I'm trying to not buy anything in bulk or like go to Walmart. So that's why I went to Etsy to buy all my stuff. So good. All right. What are you eating? Right now I'm eating almonds. Boom. (laughs) We were, we were proteining up for our chat. We knew it was going to be heavy. (laughs) Mm -hmm. All right. What are you reading? So I am actually a part of this book club and it's like, we knew that quarantine was coming. So how we do it is we each selected a book. I think there's like eight girls in it. Uh, We're all Christian women. We each selected a book. The book doesn't have to be Christian of any sort, but we select a book and then we journal and then we pass the journal and the book on. And then so we like read what everyone has said or what everyone has processed. So right now I am reading, I closed too many eyes by Paul S. Arneson. And it's so funny because I actually got the book. It's a military book. And I was like, I'm not going to read that book. And then I'm like this person who says that I'm always open and I want like new ideas at my table. And I, want to be inclusive. And I was like, okay, Tori, if you want to be, I'm always, I always do that. I'm like, you want to be like this mission oriented person that like, you need to read this book that you wouldn't usually read. So that's, it's kind of a challenge for me too. Okay. So explain, you're not all reading the same book at the same time then. Everyone's reading all eight books, but over a few months. Yes. So we each picked a book at the very beginning. I like this. 
Yeah. And then we're just passing it on. And then, so at the end, like we'll get our journal and our book back that we picked and we'll see what everybody. Oh my gosh. This needs to be a thing. I need to make this a thing in my life. I love it. All right, cool. What are you watching? Okay. I'm not much of a show person. Me and my husband, but my husband loves movies and I love him. So we just watched Paris, (laughs) Midnight in Paris, Midnight in Paris. Okay. Is it about Van Gogh? Is it about an artist? It's about a writer. Okay. So it's about a writer and he meets all of his like role models. So like C.S. Lewis and all of these different literary people and they like tell him how he needs to be a good writer and all about life. And it was, it was really cute movie. I love what you said. My husband loves movies and I love my husband. (laughs) So you're not a big (laughs) watcher. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. What are you listening to? I've been listening to a lot of Craig Rochelle's life church podcasts lately. Hmm. I really like him. Okay. He did a series on praying dangerous prayers And so we just listened to the sermon about praying, God, break my heart for what breaks yours. Mm, That was my prayer that got me into all of this. So, Mm. (laughs) Oh, Tori, it's been so good to connect with you. I love how generous you are, basically. You know, I knew nothing is off limits sitting across from you and that you see your story as God's story. And something that he created for his glory and your good. And I love how generous you are with it. You know, we have so many moms who are listening who just want to be able to get into the brain of their foster child and want to be able to have, you know, the feelings and the thoughts that you've shared with us. So I'm just so grateful for how you hold your story with such generosity and such trust in God. Thank you so much for saying that. Yeah. So tell everyone where they can find you. So I am actually about to launch a website. Oh, I yay. can't believe I don't have a website yet. So that would be ToriHopePeterson.com. And Peterson is S-E-N. And then you can find me on Instagram, ToriHopePeterson. Again, S-E-N, not S-O-N. Great. Tori, thank you so much. It was so great to connect with you. Thank you, Jamie. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Real Mom Podcast. You can find us online, www.realmompodcast.com or on iTunes and subscribe. You can find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash realmompodcast or Instagram at realmompodcast. Thanks so much for listening. His praises to my King. You are the light.